0: Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland.
1: Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer.
0: Do you want to do the welcome, or do you want me to do it? I think you've been doing such a good job at the welcome, and I'm so awkward. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Welcome back to Midwretched Friends. Welcome back. Welcome back. We are, as always, very glad that you are here. Mm-hmm. And now, officially, Christmas season. Yes. Yes. What have you done for Christmas so far, Eddie?
1: Um, I bought you a present. Yay. I bought a poinsettia, Aww. and I bought an ornament of a grumpy dog because it
0: looked like Ziggy. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> what a- that's perfect. What about you, friend? I uh, Not too much, but my, um, my monthly plant subscription sent me a tiny pine tree this month. Uh-huh. So I put some lights on it, and it's really cute. And then I got all excited and put a bunch of fairy lights on all of my house plants. Nice so the plants are well lit and then um i did a a run through target and they have these really cute little gnomes i've seen those they're
1: really cute is it the one where just like it's they're basically just a little furball face
0: no that's what i wanted but they were sold out Mm -hmm. so i got these ones that like they're kind of weighted on the bottom but they have really tall hats and just like fluffy little beards and they're still cute but they didn't have the sequined ones i wanted so i might order them (laughs) Yeah, so we're trying to get into the spirit around here. I'm usually pretty adamant about, like, don't decorate for Christmas until, like, I don't like to do it until, like, December 10th or 12th, generally. I think it was just kind of, like, old-world Catholic, like, upbringing in a way, because I was always taught, like, the 12 days of Christmas are actually the space of time between Christmas and the Epiphany, so that's, like, Christmas into early January, so, like, trees and stuff didn't go up until, like fairly late in the season so I've never done this like day after Thanksgiving (laughs) holiday decorating but this year I'm like 2020 like there are no rules yeah exactly I do what I want there is no time there are no rules we all just need a little bit of joy yes
1: celebrate however you choose
0: people yes my child however is still only wanting to listen to Halloween songs that's fine I still have my Halloween decorations up (laughs)
1: <laughs> like, they're just, like, intermingling just now.
0: <laughs> That's fine. That's the way it should be. That is very Nightmare Before Christmas of you. Exactly. Which is what we should be watching anyway. Do you have any updates before I dive into this uh, really terrible case?
1: Um, The only update that I have is about this terrible case, which I assume you're going to cover. How dare you, like, preemptively update my case? I mean, I'll cut this in editing. It's fine. <laughs> I can't help. Like, I tried... Because, like, obviously, like, I know a little bit about this case, and I tried not to, like, do more research into it, but, like, article
0: after article was just, like, coming at me. Yeah, well, it's been really interesting just this week with, like, different lawsuits and stuff. So should we mention what case it is? Well, yes, we're going to have
1: Because I like that we kind of dance around it all the time before we actually go into what case it is.
0: I know, me too. <laughs> but this one, um, the narrative is really pretty important. And actually, I want to just kind of dive right into this case. So we are today discussing the case of the murder of Bobby Joe Stinnett in Skidmore, Missouri. And I need to tell you how many times I sat in the car trying to train my mouth to say Stinnett. Stinnett. But my T-glottalization Midwestern ass voice just like cannot hit the T- I can't either. I was like, curtain, certain, kitten, stin it. But I assume that people in Skidmore, Missouri probably don't hit that hard T either. And then that prompted me to retake the New York Times accent quiz. <laughs> which tells me exactly what I already know about myself. So. That's good. I don't think I ever hit a hard T. Because
1: even if I say like my hometown, like Dayton,
0: it's Dayton. Yeah. No, I think it's kind of, that's what we do. So. <laughs> Yeah. So I was like, okay, Stina. it's just, it's going to be Stina, And that's, I assume that that's how they said her name too. So uh, Skidmore, Missouri is the home of this case. And Skidmore, Missouri is a fascinating town. It's the home of a couple of weird cases. Very strange cases. Yeah. So, and that's what puts Skidmore on the town. So it's a town of about 285 residents. Jesus. I know it's a very, very small, but I have an interesting factoid about that too. So it's in about, like, the northwest corner of the state, Um, so kind of close to the Kansas border on that side. So, like you alluded to, it's a really small rural farming town, but it has a very notable and kind of ugly history of crime. Mm -hmm. So it's often called, actually, the creepiest small town in America. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, which I know, right? Like, you call something like that, and that's, like... How to Get Tommy to Be Your Tourist 101.
1: Right? Like, that's creepier than Truth or Consequences, New Mexico.
0: Oh, it is. It totally is. And I'm like, I I will be there. That sounds like a, an interesting trip for me. Although, <laughs> this town legit sounds really freaky. The most notable case in its history is the infamous case of Ken Rex McElroy. <sighs> Do you know about this? I know so much about
1: that case. I know more than normal people should know about that case i've watched and read and listened to so much about it
0: yeah i'm in the middle of watching uh no one saw anything and it is so good or no one saw a thing yes so red-handed did such good coverage of that case i mean you could do an entire show just on skidmore so for those that don't know ken mcelroy was they called him a town bully, but I saw in this documentary I've been watching they called him a rural terrorist. And I thought that was really interesting. I think that describes him Just really that well. Because bully yeah, does so not too. capture what he did. No, he was a really horrific person. Long rap sheet, burglaries, assaults, sexual assaults, stealing people's livestock, which was like a very big deal in a farming community. You steal livestock, that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. of dollars. He uh, got pissed off at the guy that ran the general store who was like a 70-year-old man and shot him in the neck for asking his daughter to pay for bubblegum. Oh, I mean, this guy was really, really horrific. He dated a 13-year-old and then coerced her into marrying him in a different state, mm-hmm. over in Kansas, because he was married in Missouri to somebody else. God, what trash. And he looks like a serial predator of young girls. He was, yeah. So, as you can hear, he was a very awful guy. And basically, the town kind of conspired to execute him, like, in the middle of the main dragon town. So, he was, like, at this bar in the morning, and everybody in the bar had just gotten done with a town meeting, and they were like, you should just leave town. And he left, and then everybody came out, like, from the bar, from everywhere, like, around, and people just pulled their guns and shot him like multiple times on the head and nobody would say who did it and that to this day like they're holding that secret down such a such a cool story but that's not even our main story today that's just like a
1: real quick overview of another interesting one
0: yeah it, but it's important because if we say anything about this town it's just the fact that like something like that happening kind of permanently changed the fabric of that town. Yeah, yeah. And like media just blew this town up. And actually at the time there was over 400 residents and now there's about 285. So when you think about that change, it's like, well, a couple hundred people. When you think about it percent wise though, that's half of the population Mm -hmm. that left the town after that. Like that's very significant. So that was not the only terrible crime to ever happen in Skidmore. Of course, there's the crime we're going to talk about today, the murder of Bobby Joe Stinnett. Her um I believe it was her husband's cousin disappeared one day, presumed to have been tortured and murdered wow. by a man who was preying on young boys and young men. Holy shit. I didn't know yeah, that one. There was Yeah. So I was thinking about covering that at a later point. Um Can we just
1: do like a sub series about Skidmore?
0: Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a really good idea, too, actually. (laughs) And then there was another one where this woman was literally stomped to death by her boyfriend. Oh, my God. Like, her stomped to death. Yeah. (sighs) It's just kind of a place that, like, like I said, like the Ken McElroy thing, I think, just really kind of got into the town's head. And, you know, there was this sense that with, like, the Ken McElroy thing, like, it's this act of frontier justice, right? Like. You know, in the absence of, like, good organized social systems, people just take things into their own hands. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, the sheriff of the town at the time that Ken McElroy was killed was at the town meeting where allegedly they decided to do it. Mm -hmm. And he just, like, drove away, you know. So, (laughs) like, it seems kind of like the land that time forgot in a way. Yeah. So, Bobby Joe Stinnett, our victim today became the reason the town would, again, make headlines in 2004. Now, she was kind of, like, not the typical Skidmore resident. She was very much, like, outside of the social scene there, which I think is also kind of adds a layer of tragedy. Like, she's not involved in, you know, these, like, kind of, like, the community of it. Like, she seemed, her and her husband seemed to kind of live, like, they were just really doing their own thing. Just kind of trying to keep to themselves, like, mind their
1: own business. Mm
0: -hmm. Stay out of the drama. Yeah, they weren't like hanging out at the town tavern or the diners or anything like that. They were just kind of doing their own thing. So I'm going to jump, actually, I'm going to do this case a little bit differently narrative wise than we usually, than I usually do. So I'm going to jump straight to the the day that Bobby Jostinett died. OK. OK. So at about 2.15 in the afternoon on December 16th, 2004, Bobby Jostinett was on the phone with her mom, whose name is Becky Harper. Uh, and they were just chit chatting while uh, Bobby Joe was waiting for a visitor at 2:30. Becky was planning on coming over later to help Bobby Joe get her car repaired because Bobby Joe at the time was eight months pregnant. And like I said, Bobby Joe was living like a much more pleasant life than a lot of other people in Skidmore. Honestly, like she was, like I said, eight months pregnant. Uh, she and her husband Zeb ran a small business breeding rat terriers uh also zeb is a cool name
1: i was good i was just thinking that i was like zeb is the best name
0: i know short for zebulon what yeah what is he
1: even doing in skidmore
0: i know i know my daughter went to daycare with a little boy named zebulon and i just like was obsessed with that kid before the world shut down i am so shocked
1: that zebulon is not your kid's name
0: well i only have one
1: not for long (laughs)
0: That's not a hint, people. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing has happened. Yeah, <laughs> but you're right. You're right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, they were very young. Bobby Joe was 23, and uh, like I said, she and Zeb ran a small business breeding rat terriers out of their home. They had like a little um, cottage they were renting in Skidmore, um, and at the time that Bobby Joe was on the phone, she was expecting a puppy buyer named Darlene Fisher. She heard a knock at the door at 2.30 and she let her mom go off the phone and, uh, greeted her guest or so we think. So an hour later, when Becky came over to pick up Bobby Joe to take her to go get her truck fixed, she walked in to a very, very horrible and haunting scene. And again, this is only like a a little over an hour later Mm -hmm. that she was on the phone with her. So Bobby Joe is on the floor in what is described as an ocean of blood. I mean, um, a horrific, horrific amount of blood, mostly emanating from her abdomen. Mm -hmm. So Becky, her mom, told the 911 operator that it looked like Bobby's stomach had exploded. Um, And that um, there was so much blood at the scene that you couldn't see at the time that there was strangulation and a ligature around Bobby's neck as well yeah what was fairly plainly visible was a cut umbilical cord Mm -hmm. so the fetus was gone other evidence at the scene would also show that potentially Bobby Joe had woken up a couple of times in the course of the attack because of the way that the blood was kind of smeared around
1: oh my god I didn't Um, know that part Yes, oh, so she was
0: kind of systematically strangled and then came to, in the middle of the perpetrator, completing basically a makeshift cesarean section. Oh, God. Um, and then that person would then have to stop, strangle her again, and continue with what they were doing.
1: It's so horrific. I've heard descriptions of the crime scene, and it really seemed like something out of an absolute like horror movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, when I really kind of sat down to think about it, like, and you think about, you know, having given birth before, like, you know, how much just like fluid is in there that your body lets go of. So just like imagining like any other crime scene, plus the amount of blood and fluid that you have just extra by being that pregnant, it must have been unbelievable to see that.
1: And I know... You'll probably go into it in a bit, but I also know, like, it was not, there was no skill to the removal of the fetus.
0: Right, right. There was preparation, but not skill. Yes.
1: So, ugh.
0: Yeah. Yeah, really, really ugly. And I just, it hurts my heart that her mom was the one that found her. Yeah. Yeah. So at the scene, paramedics got there really, really fast. Um, the kind of the center town where there's like a hospital and stuff is Maryville, Missouri, which is not far away. But um, so ambulance got there pretty much right away. Uh, it was too late to revive her, but she was still rushed to the hospital uh, in Maryville, and um, they tried some life saving measures, but they did have to pronounce her dead at 4:27 that afternoon. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that timeline, again, she's on the phone at 2.15, gets that knock on the door at 2.30, pronounced dead a little bit before 4.30.
1: Jesus, that is so fast.
0: Yeah, it's crazy fast. Now, the amazing thing was that doctors concluded at the time that there's probably a really good chance that the baby was alive. Okay. You know, like you said, a very, very amateur job at c-section but the umbilical cord was cut like kind of precisely and given that she was in her eighth month of pregnancy the baby would have been viable um had it survived the attack in the first place and there wasn't evidence at the scene to imply that the baby didn't survive the attack
1: so was it mostly just like the intact umbilical cord that made the doctors believe that the baby survived? yeah well
0: it was The intact umbilical cord, the fact that she was eight months pregnant, um, just that in and of itself, like if you, you could potentially naturally go into labor in your eighth month. Oh yeah. Plenty of people do. Um,
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, I technically had my kid in my, in my eighth month as well. So, um, the doctors just said that she would probably be quite small. Yeah. And experiencing potentially other signs of, of trauma or difficulty just as a result of that, the violence of her birth, mm-hmm. like she might not be breathing as well as she could be. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what they worry about the most when you're in like your eighth month is the last thing that comes mm-hmm. together that's really important is a surfactants in your lungs. So when they're trying to get you to have your kid early, as they were with mine, they were trying to make sure that like there was enough time for those surfactants to develop enough that, you know she could breathe okay on her own, yep. but in the eight months, there's a pretty good chance, you know mm-hmm. uh, but like you said, the surgery was basically a hack job, I mean the incision was not anywhere near the right place for a C-section like a traditional C-section Bobby Joe's body was brutalized in the course of that attack. So there's
1: no indication I, I'm, I imagine detectives looking at that are like, this was not a surgeon, this was not a medical professional
0: Mm-mm. yeah. No definitely not but they also had no idea what they were looking for Uh, you know like just completely flummoxed i thought this was really interesting they requested an amber alert and that request was initially denied and that's because the amber alert system had never been used on an unborn baby before so because they didn't have a description Oh, clothes that Jesus. the baby would have been wearing they couldn't release an amber alert yeah when you think about that like what would you say the only thing that we would know about this baby they didn't know it's sex all we would know is that it was white yeah Jesus. so how do you do an amber alert for a white baby that's all you can say and then what do you do like stop everybody that has a baby exactly yeah And the request for the Amber Alert was initially denied. And then Congressman Sam Graves was like, not on my watch, homies. (laughs) (laughs) And and he interfered, and he made the Amber Alert happen. All right. So the Amber Alert ran just after midnight as the day turned to December 17th. So I think it ran at 1230 on the dot. All right. I thought this quote was interesting. So Sheriff Bill Lesby was the sheriff in town at the time, and he told the paper right after that Amber Alert ran. I believe there is a live eight-month-old fetus out there that we need to find. Someone was wanting a baby awful bad. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So really just... I couldn't imagine being law enforcement in this town at at any time, but especially at this time. <laughs> or being the Stinnett family. Yeah. yeah I mean, it just was ins- insanity. So... I'm going to flip us now to 177 miles away, and we can decide if this is a coincidence or not. Oh, okay. <laughs> In Melbourne, Kansas, 177 miles away, two beaming new parents proudly shut off a new baby girl, mm-hmm. who they were calling Abigail, around town. They took her to the Whistle Stop Cafe. They took her to a popular lunch spot. They took her to Casey's General Store, which... I will say, is home of an amazing breakfast pizza. I was about to say their pizza is fantastic. Yeah, the breakfast pizza especially. I was a skeptic, but I'm a skeptic no more.
1: All right. So they took this baby to get some breakfast pizza. Yes, right?
0: And so Amy Lacey, a woman that lived in town, was at Casey's General Store at the time. And they were kind of casual acquaintances, you know. And she was invited to look at the new baby and kind of talked for with the couple for a little bit. And uh, the wife told a very dramatic story of going shopping in Topeka and then suddenly going into labor. <laughs> she had had all these pregnancies that ended tragically. So this was kind of a miracle baby. She was taken to a birthing center where she had very quickly delivered Abigail Um, and then she called her husband to pick her up in front of a long John Silver's. (laughs) So getting some hush puppies. And then he just happily hopped in the car with their two teenage daughters and made the trip to Topeka. So Amy Lacey was like, wow. And you're already out here like showing the baby off. And the woman goes, oh yeah, I have, I have really easy pregnancies and births. So, uh, not that big of a deal. And that was how she explained being able to be up and about so easily. Did she claim this was the same day, the next day, or? This is the same day. So like that, the evening of the 16th. Okay. So, yeah, there's a tiny baby. A teeny tiny baby. Off, a teeny tiny baby being shown off in Melbourne, Kansas. And uh, Amy Lacey noticed that the baby was small, but, you know, looked healthy and just had a little scratch above her eye, which you know, if you know babies, they're newborn babies, their nails are like razor blades. Oh my God, they are. So, you know, I had to put like gloves on mine, you know, so that she wouldn't scratch her own face off.
1: Ugh, or yours. So, God, I remember my nephew's nails. Yes. They were little talons.
0: So that's kind of a tale of two towns right now. I'm trying to be a little bit Dickensian. So, we got Kansas, we got Missouri, we got babies, we have tragedy. So I am again going to transition us. Okay. So I'm sorry if it feels a little bit like ping pongy today, but zigzags. I like it. We're doing some zigzags. I just it seemed important to me to tell the story this way. Okay. I want to kind of talk a little bit about who Bobby Joe was in just a little bit more detail, and then kind of get back to the the week of the crime. So Bobby Joe was born to Becky Harper and Joseph Potter. Joseph went by the name Buck, which I think is a great nickname. Uh, And she was born on December 4th of 1981. So she had just turned 23, actually, uh, when she was killed. She was basically born and raised in the Skidmore area, uh, but like I said, was not like super involved in kind of the town politics or the town kind of social world. She was a really happy person, shy, like her neighbors would just say that she just kind of kept to herself, really sweet, but you know, pretty reserved she you know kept close to her family and her close friends and then she and zeb were high school sweethearts and yeah so they are so sweet their pictures are so sweet Uh, and they were married in 2002 and so very quickly became pregnant Mm -hmm. so you know bobby joe was just kind of living out her dreams like she married this wonderful man that she loved uh, one of her dreams was to become a breeder of rat terriers and to actually start showing as well. Oh, nice. And they had been able to just kind of just get started on that stuff. Like, she was kind of casually breeding puppies out of the home. And she's still and had, so young. Yeah, she's really young, too. And she'd actually been able to get involved in, like, a couple of AKC shows. So she was... You know, she was really kind of having the life that she wanted to have. They lived in, like I said, like a really small rental home, but they were saving money to try to buy a bigger home kind of as their family was growing, you know, to just kind of keep, you know, living their life the way they wanted to. Zeb worked full time at the Kawasaki Motor Company and Bobby Joe would pick up some hours here and there uh, as well. Part time. So they were just really excited to be able to announce that their baby was going to be due in January 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to really, like just really know that they just had a really beautiful little life mm-hmm. and they were happy people.
1: Yeah, really you know? just like living that dream, like the dream that they laid out for themselves.
0: Yeah, they were kind, sweet people just living in this kind of tragic town. So back to that day in 2004. So, like I said, the Amber Alert goes out across the country just after midnight. Uh, So the day is turned over to the 17th at that point. So investigators are just trying to figure out who the person was that came over to uh, Bobby Joe's house, who who was Darlene Fisher. Mm -hmm. And so they were canvassing the neighborhood to figure out who may have heard or seen anything. A couple of neighbors told police that they saw a beat up old red hatchback in the driveway of the home that afternoon and that they didn't recognize the car. So that was a kind of the first, like, big clue. Yeah. So a similar vehicle was actually spotted at 2.45 in the morning in Atkinson, Kansas. And officers pursued that car but lost it eventually. So nothing kind of came of that. The crime happened in the mid-afternoon, and the Amber Alert happened at about 12.30. The red car happened at 12.45 a.m., so that's plenty of time for the news cycle to start doing its job mm-hmm. right so by that morning what happened to bobby joe was on the news in newspapers and it wasn't just local it was national news and i remember it i don't know if you do i remember but, it yeah yeah but it was definitely national news because of the severity of the crime obviously and the brutality of it but also because of skidmore's um, infamous oh yeah. too so it was kind of one of those things where it was like, "Hey, remember Ken McElroy? Get what happened in Skidmore now." Like, what's in the water here? Seriously. So, you know, that morning, people are grabbing their newspapers and they're turning on the news, and and here's this like just horrific crime all over the all over the media. So, a woman named Diane Sitkar, who was a rat terrier breeder living in North Carolina, recognized Bobby Joe's picture right away. Mm-hmm. And her stomach just sank because the two had actually connected and become friends via a rat terrier website called Ratter Chatter. (laughs) So cute. I know, right? Um, Like, I don't really like rat terriers, but something about this makes me like them. Yeah. And, you know, on that website, they had a lot of conversations about, you know, just life, you know, in general. And the dogs, obviously, that they all loved, you know. So Diane, there was something kind of tickling her brain that said, like, okay, I should I should go look at Ratter Chatter yeah. and see, you know, if there's anything there that could just be a clue or a hint or anything that could be helpful. So she got onto Ratter Chatter and everybody was talking about it. Of
1: course, yeah. Did they release in the media that we know she got off her phone to meet this person
0: to pick up a dog? Did they release that in the media? They did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that does help. Big yeah. I was trying. I couldn't find any like stills of this website. It sounded like it was kind of like a forum, basically. So Diane is throwing, you know, scrolling through Bobby Joe's page, just looking around to see what she could see, and she found some correspondence between Bobby Joe and a user called Fisher 4 Kids. Which sidebar gross username Fisher 4 Kids. Yeah, with the number four. That's gr- Yeah, that is a gross one. Yeah. Oof. So uh, that user profile was tied to somebody named Darlene Fisher of Fairfax, Missouri. Mm-hmm. So a lot of their conversation was public, and actually a lot of it was about Darlene Fisher and Bobby Joe being pregnant at the same time. So they traded a lot of messages about just being pregnant and, you know, kind of catching up about, like, what was going on in their pregnancies, as well as the puppies. So um, Diane was like, okay, I need to call the FBI right Mm -hmm. away. This could be really important. So uh, she did, and the FBI just tore apart Bobby Joe's email to try to figure it out. And they found uh, the email where Bobby Joe had sent her address to Darlene Fisher. Mm -hmm. In Fairfax, So the FBI is like, okay, we need to tear apart Fairfax as well. There was no Darlene Fisher in Fairfax. Was at this point,
1: how good was the FBI at, like, tracking down, like, IP addresses
0: and that sort of thing? Pretty good. Okay. It was just that they didn't think they had to at first because they had a name and they had a town. Okay, fair, fair. And all these towns are small. Yeah. But as soon as they... you know, knew, found out that there wasn't going to be a Darlene Fisher in Fairfax. They did uh, went back and traced the email addresses or the emails to uh, an IP address coming out of a modem, which was on dial-up, and which makes it easier to track too. So that was a lucky break. Nice, nice. 2004. Um, yeah, right. And that modem was registered to a Kevin Montgomery in Melvern, Kansas, home of the Casey's General Store Mm. and other things. Yes. (laughs) But mostly the Casey's General Store. Mostly the Casey's General Store. I just love that breakfast pizza so much. (laughs) (laughs) So um, obviously they rushed to the home. And uh, when they rolled up and they entered the home, They found 36-year-old Lisa Montgomery on the couch watching the news, snuggling a tiny baby girl. And she, of course, was taken into custody and confessed shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to talk about her husband later. I'm not going to get into him yet. Uh, The baby, thankfully, though very small, was otherwise in really good shape. Okay, good. Good, good. And she was returned to Zeb. And Bobby Joe actually had her heart set on the name Victoria Joe for the baby. Yeah, and Zeb carried out her wishes, and they officially named the baby Victoria Joe.
1: That just feels like a very fitting name.
0: It does, doesn't it? And it's got that tribute to her mom mm-hmm. with the Joe and everything. Yeah. So at this point, I imagine you're asking, "What the hell is the deal with Lisa, Lisa Montgomery?" <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Oh, you're in for a ride. So, yeah, she, this is a lot. So Lisa Montgomery, I was trying to figure out how to describe her in just a couple of words. And the best I could do is that she is a tragic person. She was a native of the Melbourne area, that town in Kansas, another very, very, very small town. And she was just born into a really rough home life. She probably suffers from fetal alcohol syndrome. Mm-hmm. We don't know that for sure, but uh, we know that her mom drank very heavily while she was pregnant and that Lisa jo- or that Lisa Montgomery's medical records allude to some degree of brain damage. Yeah. Her mother was a very violent woman in her own right. One anecdote from Lisa's childhood was that she actually, the mom, made her kids watch as she murdered the family dog in front of them. Yeah, yeah, so horrific home, just awful. She had a stepfather that would routinely rape her starting at age 11, Um, and then when she disclosed that abuse to her mother, finally, when she was 14 or 15, her mother actually threatened her with a gun and told her to stop talking about it, basically, yeah. She also uh, trafficked Lisa as a young teenager to other men to make money for their household.
1: God, what a trash human.
0: Yes, awful. So Lisa uh, turned to alcohol at a very young age. She was an alcoholic by the time she was a teenager. And then, actually, as she got a little bit older into her upper teens, her mother essentially forced her to marry her own stepbrother, whose name is Carl Bowman. That's so disgusting. When- yeah and Lisa was only 18 do we why uh well there's some kind of ambiguation around this so some outlets will say that Lisa wanted the marriage because she wanted to get out of the house okay and then others would say it was just like a forced thing okay so I'm guessing a little bit of column a a little bit of column B like the truth probably lives somewhere in the middle yeah you know yeah um but if any of it was like a hope to just get out of a really horrible situation, that relief wouldn't come because the marriage was also abusive. Yeah. So the two had a really ugly divorce marked by just a lot of custody issues. They had a few children together and just had a really ugly breakup yeah. and ugly custody balance. Mm-hmm. So Lisa would eventually uh, remarry Kevin Montgomery and it was well-known, interestingly, to a lot of people in town that she just wanted another baby. She would talk about it at all these spots in town, like the Whistle Stop Cafe and the Casey's. And she would talk about it online. She'd just talk about it wherever she could. How many kids did she have prior to this? Four. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she was done having that first set of kids by 1990. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, actually. Okay. Yeah. So she actually that year, 2004, she told people that she was pregnant with twins and that she had lost one of the twins and was just very excited to be expecting the surviving child later in the winter. Okay. so that's kind of who Lisa Montgomery is. And um, I think just keep some of that stuff in mind while I talk about the trial a little bit. Can I ask, a maybe we'll go into it when we go
1: into the trial, I had also read that she was sterilized against her will.
0: Yes, I'm about to talk about that. Okay, okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. yeah. So the trial got quickly underfoot. She, let me get my dates. Boop bop beep bop. So boop, boop. on, boop, boop, boop. I need to get my robot on. <laughs> so on December 18th. She was formally charged with uh, at federal on federal charges, kidnapping leading to murder. Yeah. And her defense team urged her to plead not guilty so that they could uh, build up an insanity defense. Okay. So, of course, I'm going to want all your thoughts about that. Oh, all of them. Yeah. All of them. <laughs> so um, I'm going to talk first about the defense strategy. Okay. Okay. So Lisa's main attorney, Fred Ducart... Like I said, launched this insanity defense in court. His two key witnesses to that effect were two neuroscientists, uh, Dr. Vilayunar Ramachandran and Dr. William Logan. They were called in by the defense team to testify to Laura's affliction with a few different mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of list out the first three and then the last one. I want to give a different kind of section of time to. So, okay. She uh, the doctor said that she had PTSD Mm -hmm. as a result of like literally her entire life. Yeah. Um, Depression and uh, borderline. Okay, All of those tend to go together. Yeah. Well, I actually was going to ask you to kind of explain to our audience a little bit more about borderline, because I feel like that's something that gets Mm -hmm. kind of tossed around really casually, way too casually, Um, especially in true crime. Yeah. And I think people don't really know what that actually means. So can you talk about that a little yeah. bit? Yeah. So uh,
1: borderline personality disorder um, is in that court category that we call personality disorders. They don't get categorized in the same way as things like depression and PTSD and schizophrenia. What they are really conceptualized as is essentially ineffective character development where essentially your coping skills that you learn at a young age are so so rigid i should say mm. so rigid and as you develop they don't flex so for example like i have a different set of coping skills and a different way to present myself at work versus here on Mid Wretched versus when I'm just hanging out at home. There's different ways that I cope, there's different ways that I communicate and express myself, and I have different relationships and different boundaries in my relationships. With people with personality disorders, those strategies of coping with life are much more rigid. And so that causes a lot more disruptions in their self identity, in their relationships, um, and kind of how they navigate themselves in the world around them. Mm-hmm. Borderline personality, specifically, the most kind of notable feature of it tends to be kind of an unstable sense of self, an unstable unst- sense of kind of self identity. And Unstable relationships that you tend to have very, very rigid expectations of other people in your relationships with other people. And when other people don't live up to those, it can become all consuming and all crushing. A lot of times, what you'll see is people with borderline personality disorder kind of shift and change themselves to fit the expectations or what they perceive are the expectations of a relationship so when they put all of that effort and all of that work into being that one person it's incredibly crushing for them for the other person to falter in that relationship or to not live up to something mm-hmm. so it's a real lack of stability and a real lack of sense of self like so Stop. so for example in our relationship if You do something that irritates me, I'm going to be like, damn it, Tommy, whatever, it's fine. Yeah, it's not going to (laughs) crush me. It's not going to hurt me. I'm going to continue to be the same person. But if I put so much of myself and myself meaning into my relationship with you, that would hurt so much more. Yeah, And there is a very strong correlation between chronic PTSD. So, for example, the things that she had lived through, chronic sexual abuse, relationship kind of abrasions with her mother, complete lack of validation and care and warmth, lack of empathy from those who cared for her. We start to see this extreme level of validation seeking, an extreme level of need in relationships. And that's what we call essentially borderline personality disorder. And there's a lot of other stuff that goes with it. Like we see a lot of self-injury. We see a lot of lashing out in relationships. So lashing out at partners and friends and things like that. And typically there are cycles of depression with that and cycles of anxiety. And
0: yeah, thank you for that. It's interesting how it all talks to each other right like um just how much they all really feed into each other and exist as like really strong examples of just the idea of comorbidity oh god like so much
1: if anybody is interested read trauma and recovery by judith herman it is a classic piece of work on trauma and borderline personality disorder Mm. chef's kiss kiss. we love you judith herman
0: (laughs) (laughs) if you're out there listening if you're out there
1: listening i have marked up your book to death (laughs) (laughs)
0: well I am guessing that Lisa Montgomery's defense team probably did as well you know and by all accounts I think you can kind of see those things you know in her life and I also think like just kind of while you were talking I was thinking it's so interesting that both women kind of turned to the internet for camaraderie Mm -hmm. And Lisa was looking for that approval just everywhere. She wanted to talk about these pregnancies to like literally anybody that would listen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm guessing that something like ratter chatter was just for her, like another outlet by which to do that. You mm-hmm. And I'm and for, I wonder. I'm willing
1: to bet that she thought she had a much stronger relationship with Bobby Joe than she did.
0: Yes. Yes, I'm certain that she did. And Bobby Joe. You know, she lives in a really small town as well. She doesn't really have the same interests as, like, a lot of other people in the town. Mm -hmm. So I think she probably just turned to it as a way of, like, here's people that I have an embedded commonality with, Mm -hmm. you know. Much as we all turn to the internet for at some points in our lives, you know. Hi, true kind broadcasting friends. (laughs) Yeah, right. Hello out there, all you creeps. (laughs) So I just, I could see, Lee, especially thinking about what everything you said in terms of Lisa Montgomery's habits and behaviors, like, I think it all just parses out mm-hmm. so much. And, you know, I think you could probably see an example of pretty much everything you said just in the story, oh, yeah. even as far as I've told it, you yeah. know, which is by no means like a comprehensive look at her entire life, you know? Yeah. So... The last disorder with which the defense team's neuroscientists presented was pseudosiesis. Interesting. Um,
1: I'm actually intrigued that neuroscientists went with borderline personality disorder because they usually don't study personality disorders.
0: Really? That's interesting. I mean, they're both pretty, sounds like pretty well-known guys and they're right. But but I do think it's interesting that the prosecution team was the one to bring in a forensic psychiatrist. Um, So I'll talk about that, too. So they also cited her as having pseudosiasis. Now, pseudosiasis is a DSM-5 recognized disorder, which you'll often hear called false pregnancy or phantom pregnancy. Pseudosiasis is basically the false belief that one is pregnant, but it then becomes psychosomatic, Mm -hmm. and there will often become objective signs And or reported symptoms of pregnancy. So uh, that could include, you know, swelling of the abdomen, a loss or um, partial loss reduced periods, the sensation of a baby kicking or moving, nausea, you could get breast engorgement and even lactation. Mm -hmm. And then labor pain or cramps at around the time that, you know, you would like theoretically deliver. Yep so it's really just this i i was thinking about it and i was like that is such an interesting example of the concept of mind over matter right like you could believe so hard that you are pregnant that your body literally mimics those symptoms and then i wonder
1: which happens first
0: the belief or the hormone release right yeah it's very chicken and egg right mm-hmm. cuz like those things happen as a result of hormone release mm-hmm. so so
1: like is your Thought pattern and your connecting neurons, forcing you to release these hormones. Or what is
0: happening? Is there a is there an aberrant hormone release? And that's interesting too, because it complicates whether or not it's a mental illness or a physical ailment. Mm-hmm. You know, like it feels very cyclical potentially. So I think that's really interesting. What did our neuroscientists say about pseudosiasis I'm so interested. So they they just kind of they described it, and there were other witnesses that said. Um, So Lisa basically corroborated almost all of those symptoms. Uh, A friend of her daughter's, who they were teenagers at the time, uh, would say that, like, yes, she gained, like, significant weight in her abdomen. She looked pregnant. Nobody was really doubting her. So
1: she wasn't even, like, stuffing her stomach or anything like that. Like,
0: Mm -mm. okay, interesting. No, no. Yeah, she had a distended abdomen by all accounts, or at least by the defense accounts. So... The, you know, the sense from the defense team was basically that because of the pseudosiesis, the BPD, the depression, the PTSD, all of those things working in conjunction with each other would make what happened to Bobby Joe a product of the combination of those disorders.
1: Did they say anything about the
0: fetal alcohol? Not really. Okay. There, are, I know there were um, MRIs and CAT scans. And there were abnormalities found within her brain. Okay. But um, I don't believe they were able to specifically say that it was fetal alcohol syndrome.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things you cannot specifically diagnose unless you have like a positive test at the time or other documentation. But I'm wondering what the abnormalities were because fetal alcohol spectrum disorders are highly tied to increases in aggression, difficulties with executive mm-hmm. functioning. Um Impulsivities and things like that.
0: All I know was that they were able to find abnormalities in her brain that were consistent with that type of issue. But at this stage in her life, it would have been hard to say it was fetal alcohol syndrome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you don't have the traditional facial features, which we know are less common than the actual disorder.
0: Yes. And I think I could be wrong, but I think also less common in women. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. So, so yeah, so that was the what they um, kind of launched as the defense. And now remember that ex-husband, Carl Bowman, mm-hmm. also took the stand, and he testified, um, and you had mentioned the tubal ligation that she had. She had a tubal ligation in 1990 um, after giving birth to a child two months premature. Now, Carl Bowman, this is another one of those things where um, – Where's the truth? Some accounts will say that it was the doctor's advice that she undergo the tubal ligation because it wasn't probable that she would carry another infant to term. Mm-hmm. Or it was Carl Bowman strong-arming her and forcing her to that tubal ligation.
1: Okay.
0: I'm apt to believe that Bowman forced it. Yeah. I
1: Just based on everything else. Based on everything else about her life, that seems very likely Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to say there aren't doctors out there who have terrible bedside manner. But after going through birth trauma or pregnancy trauma like that, and then to be like, Mm -hmm. no, we should just give you a tubal ligation right now. Right. Like that just. yeah.
0: It doesn't feel particularly likely. Yeah. The one thing that does feel likely to me is that when I think about this case and the run of Lisa Montgomery's life. I kind of think about that tubal ligation, Mm -hmm. especially um, thinking about it as forced, as probably a very triggering event for kind of the dominoes that would fall as a result or afterward.
1: And also, it it fascinates me too, because again, coming around to the hormone thing, your
0: hormones get so fucked up after tubal ligation. Yeah. Yeah. Your body just doesn't know what to do with itself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there was, there is every card stacked against Lisa Montgomery Mm -hmm. having, being in her right mind, Mm -hmm. right? Like, but the problem is she can be not in her right mind and still be found culpable, right? So it's, you know, we know that not guilty by reason of insanity, those defenses, they are not generally very successful no. because you have to be able to prove not only those disorders exist but that they were the sole cause of what happened in the first place
1: yeah and i think that's the thing it
0: has to be the sole cause
1: like you would not have committed otherwise
0: right it cannot be just a contributing factor it has to be the factor mm-hmm. but looking at it just what we just talked about like to me that sounds like pretty legit i don't know
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, now carl bowman would kind of take to the stand and take to the media as well um, and talk about Lisa's long history of faking pregnancies now I'm using the word faking not to um, accuse her of anything or to to cheapen the disorder by any Mm -hmm. means Um, that was the terminology that Carl Bowman used so uh, she was allegedly faking pregnancies and then subsequent abortions after issues were found with the fetuses So she would tell people, like, I was pregnant, and then they found something wrong with the baby, so I had to have an abortion. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so she wouldn't say that she miscarried. I always thought that was interesting, too. Yeah. Yeah. Did she ever – do we know if she ever had an abortion or anything like that? We don't know. Okay. Yeah, we don't know. I don't think it sounds likely, just given – How young and how kind of rapid fire she had those kids with Carl Bowman but um, but uncertain so
1: one of the things I'm also kind of thinking about as we talk about this is so with the borderline personality disorder where it got its name from is it used to be conceived of as the borderline between psychotic and not psychotic that these people live on that borderline so having having those kind of gray area not truly delusions not truly paranoia is also something that we can see in this
0: diagnosis. So Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that would kind of inherently hurt the defense a bit because it's not you could I think easily say like it's It's bad, but it's not enough.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. All
0: right, so I'm going to get back to the history of the false pregnancy. So she had faked two pregnancies while married to Carl Bowman, and then three more in the later years, kind of all following that pattern of, I'm pregnant, something is wrong with it, I had to have an abortion. Now, one of the things that would kind of poke holes in the defense argument was that the day before Bobby Joe's murder... And remember that Lisa and Carl were kind of embroiled in this, like, horrific custody battle. Mm. Lisa called Carl the day before and told her that she would prove him wrong once and for all because she was having this baby. She was scared that he would use the kind of fake pregnancy pregnancy scare as a way to leverage that she was unfit for custody of the kids.
1: I see. So he was trying to paint her as quote-unquote crazy, so that she wouldn't get the kids.
0: Yes, or at least that's what she was afraid of. Yes, okay, got it, perfect. So that kind of becomes a part of motive here, like she had to produce, in in her mind, she had to produce an infant, Uh so that she wouldn't be seen as crazy. Um, I think it's also interesting that because they were in the middle of a really ugly custody fight, calls like that were not uncommon, just calls that were like tense or, you know, acrimonious. Mm. So... I'm going to talk about Kevin Montgomery for a minute here because I'm guessing that you're thinking or anybody would be thinking, like, what is the deal with the the husband, like, the right-now husband?
1: <laughs> the now husband. The now husband. Where what is he? Going what is going Kevin? on? Does he think she's pregnant?
0: Right. Yeah. So many questions. So all I can say is poor Kevin. Oh, really? Yes, poor Kevin, because he legit thought this whole time that his wife was going through authentic pregnancies so he was sharing in that excitement and then loss after loss he's sharing in that loss as well Mm -hmm. so he's grieving and he's on the roller coaster and yep he's right there with her so this final pregnancy in 2004 was a delight to him Mm -hmm. right he didn't question anything that was going on she seemed pregnant. He had no reason to question her. Mm -hmm. And by all accounts, he was just a supportive husband who was just extremely confused by this. (laughs) And just thrown for like a total loop as a result of this. This poor guy. This poor guy. I mean, he really thought when he was picking her up in Topeka that he was picking up his wife and their new baby.
1: So she had to have come up
0: like like it was
1: necessary for her to come up with some weird story about how her water broke and all of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it was this whole thing of like, I was shopping and then all of a sudden my water broke and it was just like so fast at the birth center. And yeah. So he poor Mr. Montgomery. Yeah.
1: He never saw her at the hospital and he just thought it was normal for her to just like pop out a baby and head home.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Oh, honey. And then, you know, really though, like, so you can have a home birth Mm -hmm. or a hospital birth or a birth center birth, and birth centers will very often send you home very quickly. Mm -hmm. So it's not really outside of the realm of reason that that would happen in that particular birth context. Yeah. They don't usually keep you for a day or two at the birth center. Okay. So... Um, I couldn't go to one cause I had a high risk pregnancy, but that was my original plan. If it were me, I would max out all my insurance cause they're charging me for it anyway. So again, like I, f- I feel for Kevin Montgomery mm-hmm. cause he really thinks, you know, and he thought he had this beautiful baby Abigail too. Like I just, you know, I think there, there was some stuff I read that was like, God, this idiot, how could this idiot fall for this stuff? And I was just like, Maybe that's true. But even if he's a dumbass, he's still going through a tragedy and a trauma of his own. He
1: you know? is, he's just a good old Kansas boy. Mm-hmm. He's just trusting what his wife is telling
0: him. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And he wasn't going to doctor's appointments. Like, I could see it being kind of that old-fashioned, oh, yeah. like, that's woman's business.
1: Oh, 100%. So. If, if this was a normal birth, he would have been in the waiting room with a cigar.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. So... You know, I don't, I just, I felt so bad for him. So now what's interesting, as we flip to the prosecution, so the the whole crux of the case is the insanity plea, right? That has to fly for the jury in order for her to be found not guilty yes. by that reason. So uh, the prosecution, led by Roseanne Ketchmark, cool name, um, they brought in a forensic psychologist as well, and that person would say that the link between the pseudosiasis and the pre planned, premeditated murder of Bobby Joe was, quote, voodoo science. So, in her mind, sure, she may have, may have had the pseudosiasis, but to say that that was the sole cause of a very much premeditated, pre planned murder, to her mind, was not science that tracked.
1: I don't know if calling it voodoo science is fair, but I would question the connection.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of a it's an inflammatory term, Uh,
1: honestly, and a racist one, too. It it is. But that's also what expert
0: witnesses do. Like they craft their dialogue. Yeah, for sure. And they have to just debunk the crap out of each other, too. So and so then the the real crux becomes premeditation how much of this Mm -hmm. was planned. Now the prosecution argued that Lisa had found Bobby Joe targeted her specifically motivated by the fact, like I said before, that another faked pregnancy could lose her bid for custody. So she carefully synced up their pregnancy story so that they would be, you know, on the same calendar. Okay. And she planned that specific day to commit the murder of Bobby Joe and the makeshift c-section so she planned that that day was going to be the day she set up the story about coming to look at the puppies and when she went over there she brought surgical supplies Mm -hmm. including an umbilical clamp which was why the cord was cut so perfectly
1: interesting
0: yeah Uh, she also brought baby blankets and uh, the neon paint cord that she did eventually use to strangle bobby joe so she brought all of those supplies with her to do this.
1: But one thing I also know is she used a kitchen knife.
0: Yes, she did. <laughs> yeah. So she brought stuff and then she just hacked her anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Really ugly stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: It's just, yeah. to me, it speaks to she wanted to know what she was doing. And she mm. clearly had no idea.
0: Yeah. And in her internet search history, there was also like how to perform a C-section, how to take care of an umbilical cord, like that kind of stuff was in her search history. So that again, bolsters that premeditation argument. Yeah, you know, it does. She did her research, mm-hmm. you know? So that was the trial. The That's the kind of the big points. Now the jury, do you want to guess how long they deliberated? Two hours. Five. You're close. Oh,
1: all right. All right.
0: Yeah. So they deliberated for only five hours. And on October 22nd, 2007, they came back to find Lisa Montgomery guilty of kidnapping leading to death. And the jury furnished the recommendation for the death penalty. And it's interesting that it was
1: kidnapping leading to death and not like first degree murder.
0: That's just the federal terminal. Oh, OK. OK. And basically, my understanding of why they do that is so that they can... Um, sync it up with a double felony. Got it. You have the kidnapping and the murder charge, essentially. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So it ends up being a double felony. It's easier to to get these bigger, harsher punishments when you when you put it that way. Okay. So they recommended the death penalty, the jury did, and then the following April, when her sentencing hearing came to be a federal judge, would officially rule that she would receive the death penalty. Okay. So that uh, brings us to today. Uh, so Lisa Montgomery, she did launch a series of appeals and none of them took. Mm -hmm. So, uh, she is currently the only woman sitting on federal death row. And when she is executed, she will be the first woman federally executed in 67 years. Yep.
1: So there's actually like a blitz of
0: federal executions scheduled between now and January. Yeah, I think that's really interesting too. And I, I have to wonder if part of that has to do with just the political climate shifting.
1: Oh, yeah. Biden has said that he would probably get rid he of He wants the to abolish yeah. the federal death penalty.
0: Yeah. 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 So I think that blitz is happening very much for that reason. The blitz, of course, however, is tampered by COVID. Yeah. Which is why. So Lisa Montgomery's original execution date uh, was December 8th, 2020. So just a few days away. But. Because one of her lawyers has COVID, and apparently a very severe case. Actually, oh, is in some danger. Yeah, there's been a stay of execution now. In the, in the, in the meanwhile, in the meantime, <laughs> um, there is also uh, a very strong petition for clemency. Yes. So basically, like you exhaust that appeal system, your only hope then is for the president to grant clemency. Mm-hmm. So that clemency plea has been kind of co-signed by over 800 organizations that came together to Mm -hmm. petition Trump to grant her clemency Mm -hmm. now the interesting thing is that I think people hear the word clemency and they get all their hackles up because they think that means a a pardon that is not what that means all it means is that in regards to her sentence that she would be shown mercy and would be given life without possibility of parole instead of the death penalty Yeah, yeah. so uh, that plea for clemency Is up in the air right now, you know, due to COVID and then, you know, a clemency hearing takes some time as well. So in the meantime, a stay of execution has been granted, but that is all up in the air right now. It's
1: only granted temporarily, right? I think it's only until the end of the year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because the the stay is really about the COVID. It's not about the clemency. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, they need to give the COVID time to de-COVID, I guess. I hope. Yeah. So there have also been, the ACLU reported just this week about some litigation that is coming up against uh, the federal government for Lisa's treatment while incarcerated. Oh, really? Having been particularly cruel. Wow, okay. Yeah, so she's been treated very badly, very poor living conditions, poor access to hygiene practices, things like Mm -hmm. that. There are some some charges coming up about that as well Okay. Yeah. wow headed up by the aclu yeah. to my knowledge yeah your thoughts
1: when it comes to the clemency i know from what i have read lisa has basically said or communicated through her lawyers at least she's she's not asking for a pardon she takes full responsibility and i just it's a Everything about this case is a tragedy. Lisa Montgomery's life is a tragedy. Um, what happened to Bobby Joe is an utter tragedy. Um, the only bright spot out of this is that Victoria Joe lived. Yes. I'm not a lover of the death penalty in general. No. Um, I just, I don't know. I think it's an interesting penalty for this
0: specific case, I guess. When there's, I think it is, yeah. too. I think it is, too. And I think it's really interesting. I think, I mean, there is lots of statistics around, like, who gets the death penalty, Mm -hmm. you know. And we know it's disproportionately uh, racially skewed, Mm -hmm. things like that. But I kind of wonder if, in part, the even though it was only one murder, the pure brutality of it. And the fact that it was a woman operates so far against the grain of the system. Too. Yeah. And the violence of it. I, I have to wonder if that's kind of what motivated the jury to make that recommendation, and the judge to follow. Like, I think, I think, you know, I mean, yeah. generally speaking, one murder does not earn somebody the death sentence. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. But I
1: think anytime when you involve children and, a fetus or a baby, people take that much more personally and they want much more revenge. They do. And that's really what this case
0: kind of feels like to me. To me too. Yeah. To me too. And it feels like there's this sense of... And, and this, I'm very much not a fan of the death penalty, but I think part of what goes on in the psychology of recommending it was like if you're that jury and you're hearing that this woman... Uh, So basically when Lisa entered the home, she kind of overpowered Bobby Joe from behind, Mm -hmm. put that quarter on her neck, and began to strangle her, got her knocked out, took her to the floor, and then started the the hacking of her abdomen. And like I said before, Bobby Joe woke up at least once in the Mm -hmm. course of that struggle, potentially a couple of times. Mm -hmm. So now you've got not only the original attack and the you know, this, the makeshift C-section, now you've got something that you could argue is torture as well. Yeah. So I think there's also, like, that that layer of complete brutality mm-hmm. and violence. You know, you hear that, you see the pictures of that as a jury, and then you see this adorable baby girl. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's, you know, I don't agree, but I think it's an understandable recommendation to make.
1: I think also looking at, like, the motivation for it is that it's... It's hard to see it as anything other than like a selfish motivation, mm-hmm. you know. It, it, we can talk all about the mitigating factors of Lisa's life, um, and yeah. and I definitely think those played a part in what got her to this point. Mm-hmm. But the pure motivation of the specific crime was, you know, very selfish and it was very self protective and very ego protective, you
0: know. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. And I also um, I know that when it comes to clemency, part of what tends to motivate pleas for clemency or petition for clemency, I should say, is uh, this ask that we look at the landscape of somebody's life, um, that there's a difference between theoretically somebody with, you know, a pretty squeaky clean, normal background Mm -hmm. committing a crime like that and Lisa Montgomery committing a crime like that. Mm Um, So then I think there's also, you know, that's the that's the spirit of clemency, as I understand it, is, you know, when you look at the landscape of this person's life, Mm -hmm. you know, they were part of, again, a cycle, which we've talked about in so many of our episodes at this point, like, you know, she was a part of a a cycle that was really, you know, ugly and probably predestined her to commit some act of violence, you know, at some point in her life. Do you see any possibility of getting presidential clemency? Um, I, I think this is where the timing is everything. If this execution can get stayed up to the point of Joe Biden's inauguration, Mm -hmm. I think she'll get granted clemency by that president. Absolutely. I don't know that Donald Trump will grant clemency. I don't think he would. Yeah, I don't think he would. And I think there's a reason for the execution blitz between now and the 20th of January. So my, uh, my hope isn't high, I would say. And I hope is a weird word to use there, but yeah. my my guess is no. Now I am like just scrolling this letter that is the clemency plea. So the clemency letter reads this. Dear President Trump, as over 800 organizations, scholars, individuals, law clinics, and survivors who are dedicated to ending all forms of violence against women... We are painfully aware of the victimization histories of most incarcerated women. Studies consistently show that up to 95% of incarcerated women have been victims of physical or sexual abuse. Lisa Montgomery's story is a shocking example of what the research only begins to describe. Lisa suffered a lifetime of horrific abuses, was consistently failed by people and systems that should have helped her, and became severely mentally ill by the time she committed her crime. Lisa committed her terrible crime, the seriousness of which we do not minimize, in the wake of a lifetime of victimization and mental illness, we urge you to have mercy and commute her death sentence to life without the possibility of parole. So it then goes on to describe all of the details of the abuse that she suffered as a kid. Um, so I, because we already yeah. went through that, I, I will skip that part, but prosecutors in Lisa's trial dismissed her repeated violent victimization as an abuse excuse," quote,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Lisa's abuse does not excuse her crime." but it does provide an explanation for how she came to commit that crime, a context for trying to understand what otherwise might seem incomprehensible. A victim of trauma with serious mental health issues, including dissociative disorder directly linked to her experience of sexual violence, Lisa's mental illness is inextricable from the crime she committed. Moreover, prosecutors in Lisa's case deployed gendered stereotypes to discredit Lisa's stories of victimization. They presented Lisa as a bad mother who didn't cook or clean and kept a filthy home. The failure to appear as a perfect model of womanhood, pretty, clean, docile, obedient, and well-mannered, is often used to undermine the credibility of victims of violence. Few women can live up to this image of the sanitized victim. Lisa certainly didn't, and as a result, her history of victimization was dismissed and minimized, instead of providing the crucial context for understanding her crime. Those of us who work in the anti-violence field or have experienced abuse know that victims of violence are complex, that someone can both use even horrific violence and nonetheless be a victim of serious trauma. Lisa suffered horrific physical and sexual abuse and serious trauma throughout her life, struggled with mental illness, and was a victim long before she became a defendant. While her experiences of victimization and mental illness do not excuse her crime, they do help to explain what otherwise seems unimaginable. Lisa has experienced a lifetime of punishment and it is now time for mercy. We respectfully urge you to commute Lisa Montgomery's death sentence. Thank you for your serious consideration in this matter. Sincerely. And then there are 17 pages oh of <laughs> people and organizations that signed the letter. Oh wow. So I think all that just provides something that I think we've we've said before but is really important to say again that you know, there's the person and the crime, and then the context mm-hmm. around which all of those things happen. And Lisa Montgomery is a really interesting example of context. Yeah. So, so that is the case of the murder of Bobby Joe Stinnett. Victoria Joe again, was healthy, mm-hmm. adorable, really cute baby. I found this picture of her in the newspaper when she was three, okay. and she's just so and cute so that picture is definitely going on <laughs> our, our post for this story and that really is the light that she made it she was healthy she's with her dad Zeb is a wonderful father and they're doing the best they can Yeah, and I'm glad that she's growing up and living her life and you know
1: yeah, yeah. it's so hard to think and about like, her living her life knowing how she came into this world I guess is hard to put pieces yeah. together
0: for me It really is for me, too. And I just, you know, I think about that, the family and that town and just the entire landscape of the whole thing. And it's so, so much tragedy. It's hard to imagine the things that have happened in this town, even one of them. And then you look at the entire portfolio of it. Yeah. And it's just, like, dizzying, you know. Uh And in the midst of all that, like... Like we so often find, the case itself is sensational, and you know the details are insane. Mm-hmm. And you don't know, want to lose that respect and that grieving for the life that was lost. And so I just want to, you know, reiterate, you know, what a beautiful soul that that she was, Bobby Joe was, okay. and you know that we're thinking about her.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. A, so there you have it. That was a great one. That was a great story. Thank you. Sad as all of our stories are, but you presented it beautifully. Thank you. I've really, I tried. I've definitely put a lot into that narrative. So I appreciate hearing that. Thank you so much. Hey. So as we conclude today, yeah, I would just really ask that people keep a, you know, a space in their day to think about Bobby Joe Stinnett. Mm-hmm. And her family and just, just think about her, you know, remember her. Those lives. Absolutely. I think it's just really important. So, and I think it's so easy to get in the true crime world to kind of get lost, for that to get lost a little bit, so. For us to actually, like, remember the people whose lives were lost. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Especially when it's, when the cases themselves are so outrageous.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. I was thinking about this. I'm going to drop my, my Ed Gein nugget. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we can't have an episode without you dropping an egg. I game usually games. end up cutting them, so.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah. Okay, Annie let go ahead.
1: But I was thinking about it because I was reading, like, his confessions and thinking about you never see the names of the people whose graves he robbed. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah.
0: Can you find Oh, yeah, that? I have them.
1: Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I think I... about that, how, like, we lose people
0: in true crime stories. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I get really up in arms about like dignity for the dead. So I'm glad that you'll have those names because otherwise I'll be like in an uproar about (laughs) it and no one wants to see me in an uproar. So uh, what do we want to say as we close? Um, Oh, for next week.
1: Yes. Please tell us about next week. Uh, So for next week, I know I've been doing some kind of like heavy hitters. So I was like, we're just going to do a nice
0: little teenage thrill kill. (laughs) Things only said on Midrash.
1: <laughs> but then the case, as I came to like research it, one of the big parts of the case was using the Prozac defense.
0: Ah. So
1: your friendly neighborhood neuropsych is going to give you a crash course in the Prozac defense in the course of telling you the story of another very sad murder. But really talking about mental illness and responsibility and, yeah, all that good stuff. That is so interesting. I can't wait to talk about that. Yeah, we're staying in Missouri. That was by accident, but, yeah. Because damn it, Missouri. What's going on? The show
0: me state? What you trying to show us, body? They're showing us bodies. All right. Anyway, we're going to close up. We love you. That's right. We love you. Uh, eat cheese. Man, we didn't do That's it in our cute way. We fucked it up. It's because yeah, I, I do it cute way. Up. Yeah. Okay. Um, So let's backtrack. Okay, so also, of course, be sure to follow us on the socials at Midwretched. Uh, Really enjoying the people that we're chatting with. Yeah, we love it. Thanks, guys. It's been really cool. It's been really cool. So thank you, those that are engaging with us. And uh, please continue to do so. We really love it. Yeah,
1: send us messages, chat up. We love you.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's been awesome. So in closing, as always, be nice. Eat cheese. We love, we love you. Take care, friends. Yay! I freaking love like the clear liquids hospital platter that they give you right before. (laughs) what (laughs) that shit is the bomb okay you get broth you get like three varieties of jello and then they gave me this lemon ice i was vibing like i love that so good so good